0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet, and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. According to this, I have two chapters left in this book. And so, I'm going to zoom through this. I mean, I'm not going to zoom through it, but I'm, I'm finishing this today. Because if you think... I want to live in this world anymore, you out your mind. Like, I'm really disappointed in everybody in this book. His siblings, um, the only good people in the book were, it seems, Leslie, Leslie's parents, and Jess, and 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 um, also the teacher, uh, Miss Edmonds. Miss Edmonds seemed like a good person, and Maybell. Everybody else? Like, was this what the 70s was like? Is this what the 60s were like? Where nobody cared about anybody but themselves? Like, where boys were just expected to just be ranch hands and never given any sort of sympathy or empathy? Is that what this is about? I don't agree with it. I don't like it. I don't mess with this. This is... I read a book for the adults called Horson. And... It was frustrating in a completely different way in that the man was doing horrible things to women. He was a pimp and he was doing horrible things to women. And in the end, he just got away scot-free and I was furious. I'm furious in this book because nobody is nurturing this kid. Nobody is, nobody even cares Like, I feel like his parents now kind of want to care, but they don't even know how because it's out of their character to care. They're so beaten down and so impoverished that they don't even know. Like, they treat him like he's Cinderella 99% of the time. And so this 1%, they're just like, let's give him pancakes. I can't wait for this book to be over. And it's a good book. It's well written. It was funny. It was all good until they made that decision to just make a third grader cry. Like, I don't even know what age group this book is for. But I know it's made for kids. And so somewhere right now, there's a kid that's about to start school that has no idea that they're going to have to do a book report. And that's another thing. Book reports are inhumane. Book reports are horrible. Even worse than a book report is an oral book report. Because then you got two things. One, you might have a kid who can't read as well or can't read as quickly as other kids. And you're giving them a deadline for something that they really don't want to do. And then two, you're making them stand up in front of a class and talk about it. And every kid I know other than me was shy about getting up and speaking in public. Public speaking was not their thing. I hated book reports, not for myself, but for other people. And you never let kids read what they wanted to read. Like, let the kids do a book report on a comic book. Let them do it on an anthology of comics. Let them do it on Calvin and Hobbes. Let them, everybody doesn't like to read what you want to read. Everybody doesn't live the way you live. If you want a kid to love reading, let them read. Don't tell them you can read anything except this. You can do anything except this. And this ain't on no book burning stuff. This ain't on none of that. Because I have a real beef with Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But that's more because of the age that they were written. And the racism inherent inside of them. If you want to read them, knock yourself out. They're good books. I'm not going to read it because racism is all in it. But what I'm not going to do is tell a kid that they can't read a book because I don't like the way it sounds. I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way you might think after you read that book. I want to limit your mind to shape it the way I want to shape it as a teacher. But a teacher is really a guide master when it comes to books. A guide master, in my opinion, is those white people... (laughs) It's always white people, but it's the people who go up into the mountains and go up into the hills and do tours of like like Sutter Fork and do tours of uh, not Sutter Fort because they be pushing people in directions to. I hate those tours, but the ones who will take you up into the mountains and do guided tours, but they'll let you like explore and let you see what you want to see. Teachers should be that type of a teacher. Like, everything does not have to be this is it or it's nothing. And making every kid read the same book. Like, really, there's a book called Hatchet that I've never read. But I know about it because we were supposed to read it. And I didn't. I did not. That was the one book report where I took the zero. I took the bloom. Oh, no worries about that. I ain't reading that. You know why I'm not reading it? Because it didn't appeal to me. If a book doesn't appeal to me, I'm not going to read it. and I'm not going to force my kid to read a book if it doesn't appeal to them. So you know what? Instead of my kid getting a zero, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call up to the school and I'm going to ask if they can read another book that actually interests them. You're not going to take the joy of reading away from kids on my watch. No siree, Bob. Anyway, back to this book that I'm really trying to avoid. Even though the sad part already happened. I mean, what else can they do to me? Stone me? (sighs) Chapter 12, Stranded They walked slowly across the field and down the hill to the old Perkins place. There were four or five cars parked outside. His father raised a knocker. Jess could hear P.T. barking from the back of the house and rushing to the door. Hush, P.T., a voice which Jess did not know said, Down. The door was opened by a man who was half leaning over to hold the dog back. At the sight of Jess, P.T. snatched himself loose and leapt joyfully upon the boy. Jess picked him up and rubbed the back of the dog's neck, as he used to when P.T. was a tiny puppy. I see he knows you, the strange man said with a funny half-smile on his face. Come in, won't you? He stood back for the three of them to enter. They went into the golden room, and it was just the same, except more beautiful because the sun was pouring through the south windows. Four or five people Jess had never seen before were sitting about, whispering some, but mostly not talking at all. There was no place to sit down, but the strange man was bringing chairs from the dining room. The three of them sat down stiffly and waited, not knowing what to wait for. An older woman got up slowly from the couch and came over to Jess's mother. Her eyes were red under her perfectly white hair. I'm Leslie's grandmother, she said, putting out her hand. Is she really, though? I mean, my mom's a grandmother, and she's so let's see, my mom is in her 60s, but she still looks like she's in her 40s, and so no white hairs have shown up on her head at all. Now, in that, black folks don't, I haven't seen too many black folks get just the shock of pure white hair. Like, we get a stately gray. Like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Black women are beautiful, yo. Like, oh, just that hair that they get when they're Mm, 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 mm. but I've never seen I've seen like one old black person with white hair and they're like 86 black folks go bald before they let their hair go white man I just thought about that also black grandparents look like they're 40 but really they're 60 white grandparents I mean look grandparents in themselves if my father was 22 when he when i was born and my mother was 21 when i was born and i'm now 21 22 and i'm having my own kid then they would be um about 43 44 when they become grandparents maybe 50 that's not old that's not white hair age what are we talking about Leslie in the fifth grader. What are we talking about? You know what? Never mind. It doesn't matter. Let's get through this. Thank you for coming, she said. Then she turned to Jess. You must be Jess, she said. Jess nodded. Leslie, her eyes filled up with tears. Leslie told me about you. For a minute, Jess thought she was going to say something else. He didn't want to look at her. So he gave himself over to rubbing P.T., who was hanging across his lap. I'm sorry. Her voice broke. I can't bear it. The man who had opened the door came up and put his arm around her. As he was leading her out the room, Jess could hear her crying. He was glad she was gone. There was something weird about a woman like that crying. It was as if the lady who talked about Polydin on TV had suddenly burst into tears. It didn't fit. He looked around at the room full of red-eyed adults. Look at me, he wanted to say to them. I'm not crying. A part of him stepped back and examined this thought. He was the only person his age he knew whose best friend had died. It made him important. The kids at school on Monday would probably whisper around him and treat him with respect. The way they had all treated Billy Joe Weems last year after his father had been killed in a car crash. He wouldn't have to talk to anyone if he didn't want to. And all the teachers would be especially nice to him. Mama would even make the girls be nice to him. He had a sudden desire to see Leslie laid out. He wondered if she were back in the library or in Millsburg in one of the funeral parlors. Would they bury her in blue jeans? Or maybe that blue jumper and flowery blouse she had worn Easter? That would be nice. People might snicker at the blue jeans, and he didn't want anyone to snicker at Leslie when she was dead. Bill came into the room. P.T. slid off Jess's lap and went to him. The man leaned down and rubbed the dog's back. Jess stood up. Jess. Bill came over to him and put his arms around him, as though he had been Leslie instead of himself. Bill held him close, so that a button on his sweater was pressing painfully into Jess's forehead. But as uncomfortable as he was, Jess didn't move. He could feel Bill's body shaking, and he was afraid that if he looked up, he would see Bill crying too. He didn't want to see Bill crying. He wanted to get out of this house. It was smothering him. Why wasn't Leslie here to help him out of this? Why didn't she come running in and make everyone laugh again? You think it's so great to die and make everyone cry and carry on? Well, it ain't. She loved you, you know. He could tell from Bill's voice that he was still crying. She told me once that if it weren't for you, his voice broke completely. Thank you, he said a moment later. Thank you for being such a wonderful friend to her. Bill didn't sound like himself. He sounded like someone in an old mushy movie. The kind of person Leslie and Jess will laugh at and imitate later. Boo hoo, you were such a wonderful friend to her. He couldn't help moving back, just enough to get his forehead off the stupid button. To his relief, Bill let go. He heard his father ask Bill quietly over his head about the service. And Bill answering quietly, almost in his regular voice, that they had decided to have the body cremated and were going to take the ashes to his family home in Pennsylvania tomorrow. Cremated? Something clicked inside of Jess's head. That meant Leslie was gone. Turn to ashes. He would never see her again. Not even dead. Never. H- how could they dare? Leslie belonged to him. More to him than anyone in the world. No one had ever even asked him. No one had even told him. And now he was never going to see her again. And all they could do was cry. Not for Leslie. They weren't crying for Leslie. They were crying for themselves. Just themselves. If they cared at all for Leslie, they would have never brought her to this rotten place. He had to hold tightly to his hands for fear that he might sock Bill in the face. He jess was the only one who really cared for leslie but leslie had failed him she went and died just when he needed her the most she went and left him she went swinging on that rope just to show him that she was no coward so there jess aarons she was probably somewhere right now laughing at him making fun of him like he was miss myers she had tricked him she had made him leave his old self behind and come into her world. And then, before he was really home in it but too late to go back, she had left him stranded there like an astronaut walking about on the moon. Alone. I just realized he's going through the steps. Denial was the first one. Where he was like she ain't dead and, and kept eating the, the, the um pancakes. And now he's going through anger. Anger at Bill wanting to sock him in the face. Anger at Leslie for leaving him in this place. Anger at everybody for crying. Anger at them for cremating her. It's weird seeing this laid out in a book like this for children. It is. And not really stating what it is, just having him go through it. I wonder if they're going to keep going through it. He was never sure later just when he left the old Perkins place, but he remembered running up the hill towards his own house with angry tears streaming down his face. He banged through the door. Maybell was standing there, her brown eyes wide. Did you see her? She asked excitedly. Did you see her laid out? He hit her in the face as hard as he had ever hit anything in his life. She stumbled backwards from him with a little yelp. He went to the bedroom and felt under the mattress until he retrieved all of the papers and the paints that Leslie had given him at Christmas time. Ellie was standing in the bedroom door fussing at him. He pushed past her. From the couch, Brenda too was complaining. But the only sound that really entered his head was that of Maybell whimpering. He ran out the kitchen door and down the field all the way to the stream without looking back. The stream was a little lower than it had been when he had seen it last. Above from the crabapple tree, the frayed end of the rope swung gently. I am now the fastest runner in the fifth grade. He screamed something without words and flung the papers and paints into the dirty brown water. The paints floated on top, right in the current like a boat, but the papers swirled about, soaking in the muddy water, being sucked down, around and down. He watched them all disappear. Gradually, his breath quieted and his heart slowed from his wild pace. The ground was still muddy from the rains, but he sat down anyway. There was nowhere to go. Nowhere. Ever again. He put his head down on his knee. That was a damn fool thing to do. His dad sat down in the dirt beside him. I don't care. I don't care. He was crying now, crying so hard he could barely breathe. His father pulled Jess over on his lap as if he were Joyce Ann. There, there, he said, patting his head. Shh, shh, I hate her, Jess said through his sobs. I hate her. I wish I would never seen her in my whole life. His father stroked his hair without speaking. Jess grew quiet. They both watched the water. Finally, his father said, Hell, ain't it? It was the kind of thing Jess could hear his father saying to another man. He found it strangely comforting. And it made him bold. Do you believe people go to hell? Really go to hell, I mean? You ain't worrying about Leslie Burke? It did seem peculiar, but still. Well, Maybelle said... Maybelle? Maybelle ain't God. Yeah, but how do you know what God does? Lord, boy, don't be a fool. God ain't gonna send no little girls to hell. God ain't gonna send children to hell, fam. Like... I noticed the 70s, and y'all had that whole thing about um, little girls or flowers and clovers and honey all over or whatever. I don't remember it. It was the 70s and 60s, and it was stupid, and boys were uh, dogs and snails and puppy dog tails and pig snouts or something like that. Like It was all stupid, but kids don't go to hell, fam. Don't take this time out to make it something where it's gender-specific kids are too pure to go to hell you have an opportunity to reach your son and I'm sure you will as soon as I start reading this again but we really got to break away from it fellas you really got to break away from the thought of if you have a daughter she is your world and if you have a son then you have to build him up to be strong and tough and hard why don't you build him up to be better than you in all aspects, and if that aspects includes you being a, if that aspect includes you giving him the freedom and the peace to be open and honest about his emotions and open and honest about his fears and his worries and about what goes through his head and what he thinks, so be it. Let that. Kid Cook. Stop saying that girls are to be protected and boys are not, that their feelings are to be protected and boys are not, because that's not how this works. You need to be an advocate for your child. You need to be the one person that they can turn to in the storm and know that you will cover them. Yes, they run to their mother for love, but they should be able to run to you as well. Why is there? Why is it so that kids run to their moms and not to their dads for love? It's not their mom. It's not that their mom is saying, I will give you more love or I will provide you more comfort. or I will do this, that, and the third. What are we doing as men that is letting the kids know that they need to go to their moms to find the support that they need? And how can we fix that? That's what we need to examine. That's what we need to work on. We are failing our kids. We are failing our sons. You are literally standing in front of your children showing more love to one person because of their gender. And also, stop sexualizing your daughters. Black men, I see you in posts all the time putting up pictures of your daughters. Putting up pictures of your daughters who might be biracial because for some reason you have a hatred of black women and black skin. So you have a biracial daughter with somebody who's Filipino or somebody who is white or somebody who is Mexican. And you are posting a picture of them with hearts and making it seem like you love them so much. But it's weird. It is Like, some of those pictures, y'all know what I'm talking about if you're on social media, are just a little bit over the top. It's not the pictures. It's the caption you give them. Oh, just like her mama. Oh, she gonna be killing them. Oh, she too beautiful for words. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure white men do it, too. I just don't have proof of it because I don't hang out with a lot of white men uh, that I see. I don't go into white father groups. Let's put it like that. I don't go into white father groups and see white fathers posting up pictures of their kids. I'm in the black fathers group. I see what y'all do. I see it. Also, I'm proud of myself that I still haven't cussed. He had never in his life thought of Leslie Burke as a little girl. But still, God was sure to. She wouldn't have been 11 until November. They got up and began to walk up the hill. I-, I didn't mean that about hating her, he said. I don't know what made me say that. His father nodded to show he understood. Everyone, even Brenda, was gentle to him. Everyone except Mabel, who hung back as though afraid to have anything to do with them. He wanted to tell her he was sorry, but he couldn't. He was just too tired. He couldn't just say the words. He had to make it up to her, and he was too tired to figure out how. That afternoon, Bill came up to the house. They were about to leave for Pennsylvania, and he wondered if Jess would take care of the dog until they got back. Sure. He was glad Bill wanted him to help. He was afraid he had hurt Bill by running away this morning. He wanted to, to know. Gosh, that's that's a statement. Okay. He wanted to, to know that Bill didn't blame him for anything but it was not the kind of question he could put into words. He held P.T. and waited the dusty little Italian car as it turned into the main road. He thought he saw them way back, but it was too far away to be sure. His mother had never allowed him to have a dog, but she made no objection to P.T. being in the house. P.T. jumped up on his bed and he slept all night with P.T.'s body curled against his chest. Chapter 13, Building the Bridge. He woke up Saturday morning with a dull headache. It was still early, but he got up. He wanted to do the milking. His father had done it ever since Thursday night, but he wanted to get back to it, to somehow make things normal again. He shut P.T. in the shed, and the dog's whimpering reminded him of Maybelle and made his headache worse. But he couldn't have P.T. yapping at Miss Bessie while he tried to milk. No one was awake when he brought the milk in to put it away. So he poured a warm glass for himself and got a couple pieces of light bread. He wanted his paints back and he decided to go down and see if he could find them. He let P.T. out of the shed and gave the dog a half piece of bread. It was a beautiful spring morning. Early wildflowers were dotting the deep green of the fields and the sky was clean and blue. The creek had fallen well below the bank and seemed less terrifying than before. A large branch was washed up onto the bank, and he hauled it up to the narrowest place and laid it bank to bank. He stepped on it, and it seemed firm, so he crossed on it, foot over foot, to the other side, grabbing the smaller branch which grew out from the main one towards the opposite bank to keep his balance. There was no signs of his paints. He landed slightly upstream from Terabithia, if it was still Terabithia. If it could be entered from a branch instead of swung into. P.T. was left crying piteously on the other side. Then the dog took courage and paddled across the stream. The current carried him past Jess, but he made it safely to the bank and ran back, shaking great drops of cold water on Jess. They went to the castle stronghold. It was dark and damp, but there was no evidence there to suggest that the queen had died. He felt the need to do something fitting. But Leslie was not here to tell him what it was. The anger which possessed him yesterday flared up again. Leslie, I'm just a dumb dodo and you know it. What am I supposed to do? The coldness inside of him had moved upward into his throat, constricting it. He swallowed several times. It occurred to him that he probably had cancer of the throat. Wasn't that one of the seven deadly signs? Difficulty in swallowing. He began to sweat. He didn't want to die. Lord, he was just 10 years old. He had hardly begun to live. Leslie, were you scared? Did you know you were dying? Were you scared like me? A picture of Leslie being sucked into the cold water flashed across his brain. Come on, Prince Tarion, he said quite loudly. We must make a funeral wreath for the queen. He sat in a clear space between the bank and the first line of trees and bent a pine ball into a circle, tying it with a wet string from the castle. And because it looked cold and green, he picked spring beauties from the forest floor and wove them among the needles. He put it down in front of him. A cardinal flew down to the bank, cocked his brilliant head, and seemed to stare at the wreath. P.T. let out a growl which sounded more like a purr. Jess put his hand on the dog to quiet him. The bird hopped about for a moment more, then flew leisurely away. "'It's a sign from the spirits,' Jess said quietly. "'We made a worthy offering.' He walked slowly, as part of a great procession, though only the puppy could be seen, slowly carrying forward the queen's wreath to the sacred grove. He forced himself deep into the dark center of the grove and, kneeling, laid the wreath upon the thick carpet of golden needles. "'Father?' Into thy hands I commend her spirit. He knew Leslie would have liked these words. They had the ring of the sacred grove in them. The solemn procession wound its way through the sacred grove homeward to the castle. Like a single bird across a storm-cloud sky, a tiny piece winged its way through the chaos inside of his body. Help! Jesse, help me! A scream shattered the quiet. Jess raced to the sound of Maybelle's cry. She had gotten halfway across on the tree bridge and now stood there grabbing the upper branches, terrified to move either forward or backwards. Okay, Maybell. The words came out more steadily than he felt. Just hold still. I'll get you. He wasn't sure the branch would hold the weight of them both. He looked down at the water. It was low enough for him to walk across, but still swift. Suppose it swept him off his feet. He decided for the branch. He inched out on it until he was close enough to touch her. He'd have to get her back to the home side of the creek. Okay, he said. Now, back up. I can't. I'm right here, Maybelle. You think I'm going to let you fall? Here. He put out his right hand. Hold on to me and slide sideways on the thing. She let go of her left hand for a moment and then grabbed the branch again. I'm scared, Jesse. I'm too scared. Of course you're scared. Anybody would be scared. You you just got to trust me, okay? I'm not going to let you fall, Maybelle. I promise you. She nodded, her eyes still wide with fear. But she let go of the branch and took his hand, straightening a little and swaying. He gripped her tightly. Okay now, it ain't far. Just slide your right foot a little way, then bring your left foot up close. I forgot which one is right. The front one, he said patiently the one closest to home. She nodded again and obediently moved her right foot a few inches. Now, just let go of the branch with your other hand and hold on to me tight. She let go of the branch and squeezed his hand. Good. You're doing great. Now slide a little ways more. She swayed but didn't scream. Just dug her little fingernails into the palm of his hand. Great. Fine. You're all right. The same quiet, assuring voice of the paramedics on emergency, but his heart was bongling against his chest. Okay, okay, a little bit more now. When her right foot came and last to the part of the branch which rested on the bank, she fell forward, pulling him down. Watch it, Maybell! He was off balance, but he fell, not into the stream, but with his chest across Maybell's legs, his own legs waving in the empty air above the water. Whew! He was laughing in relief. What's you trying to do, girl? Kill me? She shook her head a solemn no. I know I swore on the Bible not to follow you, but I woke up this morning and you was gone. I had to do some things. She was scraping at the mud on her bare legs. I just wanted to find you, so you wouldn't be so lonesome. She hung her head. But I got too scared. He pulled himself around until he was sitting beside her. They watched P.T. swimming across, the current carrying him too swiftly, but he not seeming to mind. He climbed out well below the crab apple and came running back to where they sat. Everybody gets scared sometimes, Maybelle. You don't have to be ashamed. He saw a flash of Leslie's eyes as she was going into the girls' room to see Janice Avery. Everybody gets scared. P.T. ain't scared. And he even saw Leslie, it ain't the same for dogs. It's like the smarter you are, the more things can scare you. She looked at him in disbelief. But you weren't scared. Lord, Maybell, I was shaking like jello. You're just saying that. He laughed. He couldn't help being glad she didn't believe him. He jumped up and pulled her to her feet. Let's go eat. He let her beat him to the house. When he walked into the basement classroom, he saw Miss Myers had already had Leslie's desk taken out of the front of the room. Of course, by Monday, Jess knew. But still, but still, at the bus stop, he looked up, half expecting to see her running up across the field, her lovely, even, rhythmic run. Maybe she was already at school. Bill had dropped her off, as he had done some days when she was late for the bus. But then when Jess came into the room, her desk was no longer there. Why were they all in such a rush to be rid of her? He put his head down on his own desk, his own body heavy and cold. He could hear the sounds of the whispers but not the words. Not that he wanted to hear the words. He was suddenly ashamed that he had thought he might be regarded with respect by the other kids. Trying to profit for himself from Leslie's death. I wanted to be the best. The fastest runner in the school, and now I am. Lord, he made himself sick. He didn't care what the others said or what they thought, just as long as they left him alone, just so long as he didn't have to talk to them or meet their stares. They had all hated Leslie, except maybe Janice. Even after they had given up trying to make Leslie miserable, they had kept on despising her, as though they were one of them worth the nail on Leslie's little toe. And even he himself had entertained the traitorous thought that he might now be the fastest. Miss Myers barked the command to stand for the allegiance. He didn't move. Whether he couldn't or wouldn't, he didn't really care. What could she do to him after all? Jesse Aarons, will you step out into the hall, please? He raised his leaden body and stumbled out of the room. He thought he heard Gary Fulcher giggle, but he couldn't be sure. He leaned against the wall and waited for Monster Mouth Myers to finish singing Oh Say, Could You See and join him. He could hear her giving the class some sort of assignment in arithmetic before she came out and quietly closed the door behind her. Okay, shoot. I don't care. She came over so close to him that he could smell her dime store powder. Jesse? Her voice was softer than he had ever heard it, but he didn't answer. Let her yell. He was used to that. Jesse? She repeated. I just want to give you my sincere sympathy the words like a hallmark card, but the tone was new to him. He looked up into her face, despite himself. Behind her turned up glasses, Miss Myers' narrow eyes were full of tears. For a minute he thought he might cry himself. He and Miss Myers standing in the basement hallway, crying over Leslie Burke. It was so weird he almost laughed instead. When my husband died, Jess could hardly imagine Miss Myers ever having a husband. People kept telling me not to cry. Kept trying to make me forget. Miss Myers loving, mourning, how could you picture it? But I didn't want to forget. She took her handkerchief from her sleeve and blew her nose. Excuse me, she said. This morning when I came in, someone had already taken out her desk. She stopped and blew her nose again. It... We. I never had such a student. In all my years of teaching, I shall always be grateful. He wanted to comfort her. He wanted to unsay all the things he had said about her. Even unsay the things Leslie had said. Lord, don't let her ever find out. So, I realize, if it's hard for me, how much harder it must be for you. Let's try to help each other, shall we? Yes, am um. he couldn't think of anything else to say. Maybe someday when he was grown, he will write her a letter and tell her that Leslie Burkett thought she was a great teacher or something. Leslie wouldn't mind. Sometimes, like the Barbie doll, you need to give people something that's for them, not just something that makes you feel good giving it. Because Miss Myers had helped him already by understanding that he would never forget Leslie. He thought about it all day. How before Leslie came, he had been a nothing. A stupid, weird little kid who drew funny pictures and to chase around a cow field trying to act big. Trying to hide a whole mob of foolish little fears running riot inside of his guts. It was Leslie who had taken him from the cow pasture into Terabithia and turned him into a king. He had thought that was it. Wasn't king the best you could be? Now it occurred to him that perhaps Terabithia was like a castle where you came to be knighted. After you stayed for a while and grew strong, you had to move on. For Hatton, Leslie, even in Terabithia, tried to push back the walls of his mind and make him see beyond to the shining world, huge and terrible and very beautiful and fragile. Handle would care. Everything. Even the predators. Now, it was time for him to move out. She wasn't there, so he must go for both of them. It was up to him to pay back to the world in caring and beauty what Leslie had loaned him in vision and strength. As for the terrors ahead, for he didn't fool himself that they were all behind him. Well, you just have to stand up to your fear and not let it squeeze you white. Right, Leslie? Right. Bill and Judy came back from Pennsylvania on Wednesday with a U-Haul truck. No one ever stayed long in the old Perkins place. We came to the country for her sake. Now that she's gone, they gave Jesse all of Leslie's books and her paint set with three pads of real watercolor paper. She will want you to have them, Bill said. Jess and his father helped him load the U-Haul. In noontime, his mother brought down ham sandwiches and coffee, a little scared the Burks wouldn't want to eat her food, but needing, Jess knew, to do something. At last, the truck was filled, and the errands and the Burks stood around awkwardly no one knowing how to say goodbye. Well, Bill said, if there's anything we left that you want, please help yourself. Could I have some of the lumber on the back porch? Jess asked. Yes, of course, anything you see. Bill hesitated, then continued. I meant to give you PT, he said, but he looked at Jess and his eyes were those of a pleading little boy. But I can't seem to give him up. It's okay. Leslie will want you to keep them. The next day after school, Jess went down and got the lumber he needed, carrying it a couple boards at a time to the creek bed. He put the two longest pieces across at a narrow place upstream from the crab apple tree. And when he was sure they were as firm and even as he could make them, he began to nail on the cross pieces. What you doing, Jess? Maybella followed follow him down again as he had guessed she might... It's a secret, Maybelle. Tell me. When I finish, okay? I swear on the Bible I won't tell anybody. Not Billy Jean, not Joyce Ann, not Mama. She was jerking her head back and forth in solemn emphasis. Oh I don't know about Joyce Ann. You might want to tell Joyce Ann sometime. Tell Joyce Ann something that's a secret between you and me? The idea seemed to horrify her. Yeah. I was just thinking about it. Her face sagged. Joyce Ann ain't nothing but a baby. Well, she wouldn't likely be a queen first off. He'd have to train her and stuff. Queen? Who gets to be a queen? I'll explain it when I finish, okay? And when he finished, he put flowers in her hair and led her across the bridge, the Great Bridge in the Terabithia. Which might look to someone with no magic in them like a few planks across a nearly dry gully. Shh, he said. Look. Where? Can't you see him? He whispered. All the Terabithians standing on tiptoe to see you. Me? Shh, yes. There's a rumor going around that the beautiful girl arriving today might be the queen they were waiting for. Okay, so I'm going to read this first because there's an author's note 40 years after Bridge of Terabithia. I'm going to read this first and then, you know. 40 years ago, I thought that no one outside of my husband and four children would understand Bridge of Terabithia. It had grown out of the worst year of our life together my cancer and the tragic death of our son David's best friend Lisa. With fear and trembling, I carried one of my first 10 copies of Lisa's mother. To my enormous relief and everlasting gratitude, the Hill family embraced my little story. In 1977, it hardly mattered to me if anyone else did. But somehow, miraculously, the Newberry Caldecott Committee in 1978 did. I remember turning away from the podium after my speech to see that the CEO of Thomas Y. Crowell was wiping his eyes. My first thought was that I had badly disgraced the company. It was startling to find the persons other than my husband, John, might cry because of the words that I had written. Now, 40 years later, it is deeply humbling to know the people of all ages speaking a multitude of languages and living all over the globe who read my stories. There were the inner-city children in Dublin who were scandalized that their lunchtime milk actually came from a cow and didn't originate in tiny sanitized boxes. The children in Australia who wrote to ask what Twinkies were The children everywhere who wanted to know why, why, why did Leslie Burke have to die? There was a Chinese child who needed to tell me about the death of her own best friend, her only friend, and how Jesse had given her the strength to go on. The child in the psychiatric hospital who would not speak or even show emotion until the college student who was a nighttime counselor read him Bridge of Bedtime and they shed tears together. That night, the child decided that he would begin to write books. And through the books his young counselor helped him publish, his psychiatrist and his parents were finally able to hear what the boy had locked up in his tortured young soul. There was a child who found out her family's dark secrets were suddenly the gossip of all her classmates and only got through the most horrible time of her life by remembering Leslie's advice to Janice Avery. To pretend she didn't know what anyone had said or where they had gotten such a crazy story and that everyone would forget about in a week. And there was a young adult who wrote to say that when, as a 10-year-old, she read about Leslie and Jessie and saw how to refuse to play the gender role society had assigned them, it had saved her from self-hatred and helped her to accept herself. How could I have imagined such responses? In the beginning, I thought hardly anyone would understand or embrace my strange little story. But it's not my story. It has been mine from the day as it was published. Bridget Terabithia belongs to readers who, over these forty years, have taken it to their hearts and made it their own. I'm very grateful, Catherine Patterson. So, Bridget Terabithia, I think, hit me harder. When I was 18, I went to college. Kids should never go to college at 18. We're not ready to go away. It's like being an adult in the biggest of terms. Like not only you're an adult, but you're fully responsible for yourself on your on on your parents' bill of course. They're they're charging you huge amounts of money to show that you can be mature and most more often than not, we're we're not. I didn't know study habits. I didn't know anything like that. I went to school strictly to fail. That was. I didn't know you didn't schedule classes at 8 a.m. and you definitely didn't schedule statistics and psych- psychology at 8 a.m. and, and 10 a.m. back to back. And you never scheduled three hour classes. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you didn't schedule six classes for yourself in the first semester of college because you took six classes all the way through high school, so why not? I didn't know that. Nobody told me. I was destined to fail. I didn't know that my roommates and I wouldn't get along because my roommates were also selfish little kids like I was. I didn't know. So I came home for Christmas break. Went back to California because I was in Ohio. And I came back to California and I was loving every moment of it and I was staying with my mom and, and my pops and Uh, We went to visit my grandmother. And we were at my grandma's house. Christmas Eve. I remember that vividly. We were at her house Christmas Eve. We were having a celebration. And my grandma got the newspaper. The Sacramento Bee. And I was reading the Sacramento Bee. On Christmas Eve. And I opened the pages. Christmas Eve 1998. I want to say. And saw that. My friend had died in a car accident. Hit a patch of black ice, which Sacramento. There's hardly ever ice on the road, but he hit a patch of black ice and spun out and crashed into a telephone pole and died instantly. I cursed everybody. I cursed God. Stopped talking to God for years curse God, curse my parents, curse them for making me come back home so I could, if I hadn't come back home, he would have lived forever, bargained with people, tried to really figure out and cope with the fact that a friend who I was planning to go and see, after Christmas, we are going to go meet up, like all of us, back from college. We're going to meet up, take pictures, have a good time. My friend was dead. I couldn't even go to his funeral not because I couldn't go to his funeral I mean I I can't do funerals I I can't the crying and the histronics and everything I can't do it but I didn't want to go to his funeral because I didn't want to see him not vibrant not the person that I remembered him as I still haven't been to his uh, gravesite I haven't looked at his obituary Death is a funny, funny, whimsical thing. Like, you find out so much more about yourself after you die. Honestly, you find out so much more about yourself after you die. Like, you find out what people really thought about you. Or at least what they say they thought about you. You find out what they wish they had said about you. And what they wish they could have said to you. They find You find out... Who will stand in the rain for you? Find out what your legacy is. For me, Andrus' legacy was how he played basketball. How he played everything. How he did everything with a zeal of life. He couldn't play basketball at a lake. Like, he was awful. But he still made the team because he never stopped talking. And he never stopped playing defense. I was jealous of him because I didn't even make the team. I was worse than he was. Like I was a six foot kid who was told that he was going to be a center. So I didn't know how to dribble. I was awful. We were awful together. But he made every moment magical. You knew where he was, no matter where he was. And I'm not saying this like he was the most popular kid in school. He wasn't, but we all grew up together. So he was popular to us. He was popular in our circle. When he died, I didn't talk to his mom, I didn't talk to my friends, I didn't talk to anybody, I think that was the last time I talked to a great number of my friends, I just stopped and I went back to school and I failed. Fell out badly. Like the first semester I was holding on. That second semester everything just fell out. The bottom just fell out. I shouldn't have gone back to that school. In another state where it never was sunny. With that on my mind. Fell into a depression. That was the first time I fell into a deep depression. By myself. Ran up calling cards and all that kind of stuff. Calling my mom. Begging her to let me come home. I fell out like straight F's. My papers that I wrote were good. I I probably didn't get straight ass. I don't know. I don't remember. So I feel for Jesse. I understand Jesse. But what I also see is the fact that we as kids and maybe as adults took on that myopic role like nobody else is mourning like I'm mourning. Why aren't they mourning like I'm mourning? Why aren't they doing this like I'm doing this? But everybody agrees differently. I'm glad he's going to keep Terabithia for his siblings. Maybelle deserves to be a, a queen and a princess. Joyce Sand deserves to see it. Leslie would have liked that. And I am so sorry uh, for Catherine's son's friend Lisa God bless her 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet Gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook You can leave a review on Spotify All you gotta do is push the star and then just put five stars it Only It takes a few seconds You can also leave a review on Podchaser Copy and paste that into the Good Pods app and copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. Uh, you can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening to this. It affected me like I never thought it would, but I'm glad I read it. I will never read it again. Y'all be good. I'm going to at you later. Peace.